May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Everyone loved Granny Rice. You would have loved her too if you had met her. Um, her real name was Nancy, but I only ever called her that one time, and then she quickly corrected me. Granny is my name, and everybody calls me Granny. It was our first Sunday in Kentucky, way back when. Um, children were real young. It was my very first Sunday as a, a pastor at my very first parish that I was ever part of. It was a small parish, a small country parish. Uh, you would not find it on your way anywhere else. You had to be going there to get there. Um, but on this particular Sunday, my very first was Homecoming Sunday. Homecomings are big in the South. There were a hundred people in a church that normally had about 20. And so there were all these people, you know, on our first Sunday there. And of course, as you do at Homecoming Sundays in the South, you have a big potluck dinner afterward and there are tents set up on the lawn and and then we went out there to have to have lunch, and um, and I sort of did what I tried to do, you know, like meet people. Abby and I would try to meet all these people that we wouldn't see for another year, um, but we went out, and there were some of them among them that would we'd see we would see the next week. And I would just kind of move from table to table, and and eventually landed at, at Granny's table, and she was so sweet. I mean, so hospitable, so gracious. Um, she, you know, that the entire time I was there, not not one holiday went by that she didn't stop by to invite me to make sure that our family had some place to go because she knew that we were, we were far removed from our family. But she was just this sort of sweet, hospitable person. And, um, and she was famous, actually. I mean, people even outside of our parish, they knew her all around um, for this kind of sweet hospitality that she had, but also because um, she was famous for making jam cakes. I had never heard of a jam cake. I don't know, have you ever heard of a jam cake? But um, I had never heard of one. I didn't even think it sounded all that appealing, to be honest with you, um, because although I do like jam, and it's, as it's evident, I do like cake, um, I, I wasn't sure that those were two things that I would put together, you know? I mean, I like grilled shrimp, too, but I don't think I'd put it with cake, you know? It's not like the, those aren't the sort of combinations that I was looking for, but um, it was a sort of famous uh, uh, thing that Granny made, and, and so famous that she had won, like, blue ribbons at county fairs. Um, one, you know, at, at the church auction, she would put up a jam cake and it would sell for over $100. I mean, it was a, it was a big deal there, Granny Rice's jam cake. And, and she, was, um, she was probably less interested in it than everybody else, you know, but she had a little bit of fun with it, too. I always thought that the only thing she perhaps could do that was being more notable is she would have played point guard for the Wildcats. Other than that, Granny was about as famous in those you know counties around uh, around Mount Sterling as you could possibly be, and all because of her jam cake and her sweet hospitality. And it got me thinking about how we get known for things, you know how. We have our own little 15 minutes of fame in the world, you know, that, oh, you know, she's, you know, isn't she so smart? Or, you know, isn't he just a great golfer? You know, people say that about me all the time, right? Frank says it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody says it about me. But they say it about some people. I, I always think I would like to be that person of whom they say, isn't <laughs> he a great golfer? I mean, we have these things that, that we, we, we do. Um, and they sort of drive us. We, we want to, to be good at whatever it is we do. We want to be a success. And so we get a little bit competitive. And competition's not bad, is it? It's not all bad. Um, competition gives us board games. I mean, 
Board games would be B-O-R-E-D unless we could compete with them, right? I mean, we need competition. Uh, when my children were young, um, like two and three, I'd make them roll to see who goes first, even though I'm playing, you know. I, you're not getting a jump on me in Candyland. I don't care. It's not going to happen. And, and, um, and, and when they, they grew up a little bit, when we played Monopoly and I taught them how to play, I would never tell them. I wouldn't remind them if I landed on one of their properties. If they didn't notice, I'm not paying rent. I don't care, you know. And my, my wife would point it out, you know, Joe, tell them you're on the... And I get so frustrated, you know. Like, we play aggravation. I always send them back to start, you know. And now what's really bad is they're really good at these games, and they do it to me when we play. And so, you know, turnabout, I guess, is fair play. Competition is what makes games fun. It's what makes sports fun. We, sports would be totally boring if we didn't have Michigan to hate. Right? Or the Steelers. Oh, yeah, you knew it was coming, didn't you, who you Steeler fans out there? Yeah. I mean, what fun would it be if we played baseball and there was no score? I mean, it wouldn't be fun at all, right? I mean, it's totally boring. Um, So you can't have a real enjoyment in some ways without some level of competition. Competition also bleeds over in places you don't even expect it. There's competition in academics. You know, you're a straight A student or a straight B student or whatever. You don't get that way unless there's those C and D students. That just doesn't happen, right? That you need those C and D students to be A and B students. I even I discovered in in teaching in higher education how true this is that you could have a class of above average students. They're all above average, and you know what? Some of them would be just slightly above the above average. Those would be your A and B, and then you'd have your, you know, your C students out of there. But if those C students went into the class of all average students, they would be the A students. It's the competition, the, the, the comparison between one another that makes some rise to the top. Competition is what makes some people thrive and others feel crushed by it. Somebody loses their job and somebody else gets it. For one person, it's a great moment. For the other, it's a disaster. You know, blue ribbons are handed out at the county fair, which means that some people didn't get blue ribbons. Maybe they got a red ribbon, a yellow ribbon, or no ribbon. You know, they worked really hard, and and they feel so, you know, kind of blown away by it. It, it, Competition is what makes siblings rival for their parents' affection, as nonsensical as that might be. Competition is everywhere. You can't escape it. And the truth is, you're probably not really sure that you want to. And that's where our text in the gospel finds us today, doesn't it? It's a really ancient passage. You know, 2,000 years old, this story of Jesus walking through Galilee, up around the north side of the lake, of the Sea of Galilee. And, um, and he's walking, and, and it almost sounds like it could have been something that was ripped out of the newspaper or maybe um, off of the Real Housewives if these weren't men, you know. There's this fierce competition that's going on. You recall the story, right? They're walking along the road, and, and Jesus is out front. Uh, Mark assumes that you know this, that Jesus is out front, and that the disciples are trailing behind. He, he, he sort of mentions it, but more in passing. Because in the ancient world, if you were a rabbi, and you had this little disciple group that would follow you, you would be out walking out in front, and about you know five yards, 15 feet, 20 feet behind you, 
would be your, you know, your class, your friends. Uh, I like the way that Mike put it last week, your associates. You know, they, they would be hanging out behind you. They would, you. You're all going somewhere. You know, we're walking from here to the Acme store and um, the, the, the rabbi would be out front and then the, the disciples behind 10 or 15 feet. Maybe even 20. So they're back there behind. And, and Mark kind of you know, assumes that you would envision this. And as they're walking along, I kind of think of it like a, like a NASCAR race. You know, All of a sudden, somebody realizes that you know, he's way back in the pack. But not just way back in the pack. Not that he just doesn't want to you know, see the backsides of these men, which he probably doesn't. But he, he, he realizes that he is, he is you know, kind of stationally. He, he's... Um, He's, uh, in terms of importance, moved back in the pack. And so he kind of, you know, you know how they do, right? He just kind of throws a little chicken wing out there and bumps his way through, you know, maybe one or two guys, and he's kind of moving up to the front, you know, kind of, hey, I'm here, I'm important. I, I can even imagine, can you imagine, you know, he, he probably says, James, who do you think you are? Get out of my way, you know, got a little shove. And that's when the argument begins. I have four sons, I... I've seen this argument take place, you know. It happens sometimes in the back seat of the car. You know, somebody wants to be moved over by the window and, you know, there's a little fight for the, you know, for the window seat and or you know whatever it was. There's this little scrap that goes on. And you're in the front of the car. You've been this, right? And you try not to pay attention. You just try to ignore what's going on, hoping that it sort of sorts itself out. This is what happens with Jesus walking down the road. It's probably not much wider than a sidewalk, you know, this path that they're walking along. He's walking down the road, and there's this fight that starts breaking out behind them. Voices are raised. They begin to argue. Jesus says, you'll notice, what were you arguing about? Um, The word actually means to talk through. But all the translations show this sort of kind of nuance that it's not just, it's not just a discussion. It's not just, um, so, what do you think? Should, should a person have one lump or two lumps in their teeth? This is not the sort of discussion they're having, is it? This is a sort of a fight, a nasty kind of bickering argument. The, what were you fighting about? What were you arguing about? Um, and they don't say, you know, because the thing that they're arguing about is who is going to be the greatest? Maison. It's from the word megas in Greek. Who's going to be the mega disciple? You can even hear it, can't you, in our English use of that same word. That who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be the, you know, the number one, the top? Well, in fact, that's actually what Jesus says. You know, um, he, he says, whoever wants to be first, protos. Whoever wants to be the mega protos disciple. This is what the fight is all about. Who wants to be first in line? Who wants to be the, the mega, the best, the top disciple? And I find it interesting, though, that he doesn't interrupt them during the discussion. He waits until they arrive at the house. Did you notice that? They, they're on their way. They arrive at a home. We don't know whose home it was. Probably Peter's. I don't know. They arrive at the home. And then notice what happens. Look, look, will you look at, me at the gospel lesson. In verse 35, Mark says, Jesus sat down. He sat down. Now, Mark doesn't want you to think that, look, he, um, you know, they've gone into the living room and it's time for tea and we're going to have a little discussion. This isn't the sitting down. 
To sit down and, and, and begin to teach in the, in the ancient world is the way that rabbis would do it. Sitting down to have a lesson would be not unlike walking into the pulpit. He sat down to instruct them. He sits down and he calls the twelve to him. This is, this is lesson time. This is what's going on. And, and he asked them, what were you arguing about? And no one wants to speak. Whoever wants to be first, Jesus says, because he already knows what they're arguing about. Whoever wants to be first has to do what? Has to be last. You know what? If you want to be the first disciple, you want to be the mega disciple, you want to be the greatest disciple, you know, you can have that job. That, it turns out that job is vacant. You know, we're, we're in fact interviewing for that position as we speak right now. You could, anyone who wants to can have it. There's just this one little catch, one small qualification. All you have to do is to be last of all and servant to all. You want to be first? You have to be last of all and servant to all. You know, Mark could have simply used the word all just one time. You need to be last and servant to all. In fact, that's the way the NIV translates this this passage. Last and servant of all. They drop out one of the uses of the word all. Mark, who has, writes the shortest gospel, has the, the, the greatest concern for the economy of use of words, uses this word twice. Last of all, servant of all. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I'm not really bright. I was not, you know, I, I was helping everybody else get good grades. Um, but I even, I can see that last of all, and servant to all is emphatic. You have to be last and servant of all if you want to be greatest. And then there's a nice little caveat. Jesus does an object lesson. I always loved object lessons, didn't you? You know, and that teacher brought in, you know, uh, whatever, and you're like, oh, yeah, I like, I, that makes sense. I see it. Jesus is sitting there. And Mark says he takes a child. I assume there's some child that's, you know, playing with whatever, stick or toy or, or something on the floor. He, he takes this child and he stands him up, or her. I know it's, it's unclear in the Greek, probably him. He stands him up and he, he, he puts him there. There's a tradition that says that, um, that uh, this child was St. Ignatius, that he was a, a young child. And he sit, stands him there and... Um, and he takes this child and he wraps his arms around it. And, you know, I read that. And if you look real close to the text, I mean, Mark is, is real descriptive in how he talks about the way that Jesus does this. It's very warm. It's very, very touching. But in the ancient world, no rabbi would ever do this. Ever. Children were not viewed the way that we see children as, you know, kind of sweet and cuddly and, and aren't they nice. They were viewed as slaves. The word in Aramaic for child and slave is exactly the same word. Before remote controls were invented, I knew something of this, you know. My children think that televisions were always remote control. When I was a child, I was the remote control, you know. <laughs> My mother would be like, turn that to channel 7. All right. And I'd turn it to channel 7. Oh, I don't want to watch that. Turn it back to channel 3. Like, what, what? You know, here I am sitting there moving. This is the way ancient people, you know, they viewed children... As low socially, they, they were valued and, and, and cared for, but, but they were not viewed in, in terms of hierarchy at the top. They were viewed at the very bottom of the social 
um, structure. And Jesus is taking this child and wraps wraps his arms around it, pulls that child tight, is saying to them, you have to love and serve this child if you want to be great. And I think everybody gasped at that. You want to be the mega disciple? You have to get below the lowest person on your social structure. You have to love them and serve them. It occurs to me that sometimes um, it's not the hard things that trip us up. You know, uh, we might go off to war. You know, give me a give me a weapon. I'll, I'll you know I'll risk my life for that. You know that I'll do the hard thing. You know, uh, give me money. Oh yeah, I'll I'll give money to that. Thing. You know, whatever. How about time? How about tenderness and compassion to a child? to a homeless person, to an elderly person who's really high maintenance and a pain in the, you know what. You know, how can I, can I give my, my love and concern and care to that person? That hard thing to do. And we like to compare ourselves a lot, you know. We like to be the smartest and the prettiest and the most accomplished and all those sorts of things. We like for people to say, oh, wasn't she or he just the perfect host or hostess and weren't they just so kind and clever or brave or whatever? We want to be first and the greatest. And competition isn't limited to the tennis courts or the pie-baking contest. It's all around us. And I'm not saying that the spirit of competition is bad. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that Jesus sort of sits it on its head, doesn't he? When it comes to terms of being... a faithful follower of him, what does, a, what does it look like to be a real good disciple? What does it look like to be a, a thorough follower of Jesus? Well, it's the one who stops trying to be the greatest and embraces being the last. The one who doesn't want to be served so much as to serve. The one who wants to give rather than take and be obscure rather than to be noticed. I think Jesus is saying, I like competition. The job is open, you know, or taking applications. Do you want it? Here's all that it takes. Do this and you'll be truly great. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.